Come with us to the Della Garden, a vast underground ruin and one-on-one role-playing experience with an original setting, characters, and music, as well as short episodes that focus on one character every season. Find us anywhere you listen to podcasts at the Della Garden RPG Podcast, spelled D-E-L-A-G-A-R-D-I-N. Are you ready to descend? The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Welcome, new listeners. I've marked this episode as a good point of entry for those who want to get into the show, but don't want to go through all the early episodes, where the characters were weak and the audio was weaker. To be clear, this is not a new season, nor is it a new story. It's the continuation of the same tale we started with. However, we're at a special point in the story, a kind of threshold, where it feels we're about to enter a new phase, and I think this will make a good waypoint where new listeners can hop on. So. If you're someone using this episode to get a taste of the show, I welcome you, and I thank you for your time. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Here's the story in 50 words or less to catch you up. A party of adventurers featuring the traditional array of classes escapes from some goblin slavers and moves through several ordeals featuring a wizard's dungeon laboratory, a cave full of goblins, and a vengeful nobleman before ending up in a dwarven citadel. The presence among the dwarves is the catalyst for a bloody coup, which is carried out while the party manages to escape. Before they go, the erstwhile ruler orders them to see her great-granddaughter to safety. There are too many episodes available right after chapters 10 and 20 that tell the full story in greater detail while still emphasizing brevity. Of course, you can always just start at the beginning and witness the show evolving by degrees. It's been quite a ride. Speaking of rides, Tale of the Manticore does have some pretty high highs and pretty low lows. It's not a show for kids. Episode zero contains information about sensitive content you might want to hear before getting on board. Whether you're new to the show or you've been with me from the start, welcome, one and all. The adventure is really just beginning. Last time on Tale of the Manticore, In chapter 26, we spent some time expanding the map of our fictional world of Merith, and then pulled the camera close in on our party as they took their first steps towards their new goal, the Arlegwar, whatever that is, we aren't sure yet. 
we only know that Harl has been charged with escorting Ursuleth there in safety, and that there will surely be problems along the way. Of course, there's the physical obstacle of 200 miles of mountainous terrain separating them from their destination. Hunger and thirst will be major concerns, and almost right away. Also, of course, since this is D&D, there will be unknown dangers in the form of randomly generated encounters. Lastly, there's a force hunting them, and they have orders to take no prisoners. Meanwhile, back at the Dwarven stronghold, one of our main antagonists, the usurper, Barak Ironskin, seems to be undergoing some kind of change. I don't think we've seen the last of him. Do you? Well, that's enough about what has gone before. Let's get back to Umura, the magic user, Eredin the thief, Girios the cleric, Harl, the dwarven warrior, and Ursuleth, his young cousin, and see what the first few days are like in Kazmirioth, the river of iron. Chapter 27, Part 1, Day 26, Evening. Elevation, 7,500 feet above sea level. Party status. The three humans of the party are suffering from the effects of exhaustion and will take a minus one to any combat-related rolls. Harl, 16 of 16 hit points. Eridine, 12 out of 12 hit points. Girios, 21 out of 21 hit points. Umura, 13 out of 13 hit points. Ursuleth, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Light, and Levitate. Girios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds. The fair weather did not match his emotions. Harl worried about his brother Thern and, try as he might to push the thoughts away, he feared the worst. Every step took him further from being able to do something about it, but he knew, deep down, he could not go back. He had a job to do. The party scrabbled, slid, and crawled over the rocks. They quickly learned that the unforgiving terrain sapped their energies both physically and spiritually. The relief and joy of walking downhill was soured with the knowledge that a hard climb was not far off. Another drain on their morale, the party members began to feel the first pangs of thirst. Fortunately, hunger had not been a problem. At the end of their day's trekking, Harl reluctantly admitted there was no choice and permitted a tiny fire. The kid had been butchered, portioned, and cooked. Girio said a special blessing over the meat and assured them it was safe. They had taken only two breaks during the day. The first had come early. Girios had insisted on stopping while the sun was rising so he could pray at the appropriate time. Umura had busied herself with her new spell while the cleric went through his devotions. The second break had been a very short one, just 20 minutes, to rest and share sips from their water skins. Now as the sun set and Harl stamped out their little cook fire, the group found as comfortable a rock pile as they could and huddled together to sleep. They took turns at watch, with Harl and Ursuleth sharing the middle shift together. The three humans were asleep and snoring the moment they closed their eyes. Every one of them was utterly exhausted. Dramatis Personae, Umura. There were four glittering silver strings tied to her, one to each of her elbows and each of her knees. She felt a tug and her arm lifted, and then another, and up came the opposite knee, involuntarily. The feeling of powerlessness was both sudden and terrifying. She looked to her left, but there was nothing there, only endless inky darkness. 
She looked to her right, the same. The strings pulled again, this time roughly, and her other knee pistoned up. Then the opposite arm. Panic blossomed in her brain, and the strings were yanked hard, alternating. Left knee, right arm, right knee, left arm, and again, and again. She was dancing like a child's doll, a living marionette. She looked up and moaned. Above her, as large as the sky, the face of Dermond loomed over her, looking down. A sick grin spread across it, but soon faded as the titanic mouth grew slack and its lips parted. From those parted lips drooped an amorphous thing, a colossal pile of green-colored slime. It oozed over the wizard's beard and then dropped, slamming over her like a tidal wave. She tried to scream, but the moment she opened her mouth it became full of viscous goo, and the weight of it all over her body bore her to the ground where she crawled, trying to draw a breath through the thick, sticky mass. Then, as though it had never been there, the slime was gone, and she kneeled in the endless darkness, alone, consumed with fear. She still could not draw a breath. Confusion turned into fresh terror as she became aware of something around her neck. She touched it, clawed at it, and her fingernails raked ineffectually over hard scales. She felt the weight of the serpent now. She felt it constrict. Muscles traveled through the reptilian body in a series of lumpy waves. It contracted again, and Umura felt the scaly bulk slide under her chin and tighten. And then the ground disappeared, and she was falling down, down, through empty space. The darkness was now complete in every direction, and she was alone in the universe. A complete solipsism. The snake was gone, but still she could not breathe. Her body seemed to twist as it plummeted, and now she saw the silvery rope once again, extending away from her body forever into the black sky above. Down, down, falling faster and faster. The silver rope was now a single cord wrapped around her throat. Suddenly she knew she could not fall forever. At some point, she would reach the limit. The rope would pull tight, and then... <gasps> Chapter 27, Part 2, Day 27, Late Morning, Elevation, 6,000 feet above sea level, Party Status, Harl, 16 out of 16 hit points, Eridine, 12 out of 12 hit points, Gyrios, 21 out of 21 hit points, Umura, 13 out of 13 hit points, Ursulith, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Light, and Levitate. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds and Purify Food and Drink. I get the feeling that making these next few rolls is going to become something of a familiar routine before long. I need to determine whether, the chance for a stumble upon, and finally, Wandering Encounters for each game day. A quick reminder that although my Wandering Encounter list is mainly creatures, it's not limited to just that kind of encounter. It's posted on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com if you'd like to see all the might-happen encounters, or if you'd like to use it for your own game. Okay, let's get to it. Here come the rolls. For weather. A four, that means bad weather, but not bad enough to cost them an extra day. It might affect other things, however. Next is the stumble upon. I got a seven, so this roll does not produce a result. 
Finally, the roll for Wandering Encounters. A six on a die six will indicate that there is one. I've rolled a one. Harl had intended to let them sleep until noon this day. Hours before, Girios awoke, did his sunrise prayers, and then fell right back to sleep immediately after. Since then, the rising wind and a darkening of the sky made him doubt that their rest could continue much longer, but they all seemed so peaceful in repose. Suddenly, Umura sat bolt upright and cried out. Harl was sitting on a rock at the time, idly picking at the dirt under his nails and frowning at some black clouds coming in from the west. He was so surprised he actually fell backwards off his seat and landed hard on his back. When he struggled up to see what was the matter, he found his companions all emerging from sleep and Umura looking around confused. She was gingerly touching her neck. Are you all right, Umura? said Harl, his face creased with concern. The magic user blinked hard and seemed to finally realize where she was. She nodded blankly and had just opened her mouth to speak when a peal of thunder boomed across the sky. The air grew darker still and then big drops of rain started to fall, lightly at first and then hard, pelting them and soaking them to the skin in a matter of minutes. There was no shelter and so, after it was determined that Umura had suffered nothing worse than a bad nightmare, the party collected their things and resigned themselves to a miserable full day's march that looked to be cold and wet the whole time. Despite the extreme discomfort, the bad weather, which would have been rotten luck on any other day, filled the party members with new hope and vitality. Ursuleth was the first to raise her face to the sky, allowing the rain to pelt it and opening her mouth to catch a sorely needed drink. The storm was not a scourge to the travelers at all. It was a blessing. Thank Mazagar, declared Gyrios. He had Kagan's half-helm in his hands and was using it as a bowl to catch rainwater. Eridine's bright green eyes flashed and she gave a rare laugh, smiling broadly with her chin up and throwing her arms wide as if to embrace the sky. And so they traveled south, following Harl's lead, with the cold rain hammering down and their hearts oddly lifted up with feelings of joy and gratitude. Have you ever wanted a podcast that tackles the hard questions? Like, why do wizards wear those pointy hats? Is it morally okay to burn your name into a table? Is there a difference between dead and never waking up? Well, if you've ever wanted to know the answers to any of these questions, then I have a podcast for you. We are Goblets and Gaze, a bi-weekly Pathfinder 2E podcast. Join our cast of an angsty barbarian, a pyromaniac goblin, a girl whose family loved astrology a little too much a cultist, and a hot topic reject as they journey to a lost city and try to keep a twink alive. Follow us all on your social media at Goblets and Gaze, join our Discord as well, and we hope to see you out there. Goodbye. I'm going to make the rolls for the next day of travel now. Here goes. Weather. A 20. Wow. Tomorrow will be a perfect day. The air will be warm and dry and the sky so clear that they'll be able to see for miles in every direction. No wonder they're making such good time on the way to the foothills. My next roll is for what I'm calling stumble upon. I have a 10. That's nothing. And finally, wandering encounters on a die six. A two. Night came and the rain disappeared as abruptly as it had begun. It had fallen steadily the whole day, making a campfire impossible now. For their last one, they had used bits of lichen and scrub grass that they'd collected along the way. 
There'd be nothing like that to pick up today. Even if the storm had permitted them to find any more combustibles, they, all their gear, everything around for miles, were sopping wet. Before finding the least uncomfortable place to get some sleep, they all stripped and laid their clothing over flat rocks, of which there was no shortage. Then they set the watch. Eridine first, then Umora. Next were Harl and Ursulith together. And finally, Gyrios, who requested this shift in order that he might witness the sunrise. In the morning, they woke to the sound of his prayers. Their rocky bower was bathed in light and their skin felt warm. Gyrios's face was aglow with rapture. The cleric noticed his companion's awakening and shared a little scripture with them. Rise like the sun, be true as the light, and righteous as the fire. Good morning, my friends. It is a glorious day. The companions found their belongings had dried overnight and eagerly put on the sun-warmed clothes. Everyone felt good. They felt even better after eating the last of their cooked goat meat, after Gyrios had prayed over it, and drinking a little from their water skins. Stoppering one of the skins, Harl asked Umura if she had had any more bad dreams. She said she hadn't. I expected a sleepless night. Instead, I got a dreamless one. It might have been the effect of the heavy rain, or perhaps they'd simply covered enough ground, but Umura thought the air seemed richer. She became convinced of it after they'd gathered their things and started walking. There was no question. She felt no longer out of breath all the time. Even her thoughts seemed clearer. The companion's morale remained buoyant throughout the full day of travel. At lunchtime, Eredin pointed into the sky. When they looked up, they saw a great eagle soaring through the sky and scanning the ground for its next meal. Harl and Ursulith remarked simultaneously that it was a good omen. To end what was essentially a perfect day, yet another welcome sighting. Just before sunrise, as Harl hopped atop a nearby boulder to recheck their orientation, and this was something he did every few hours, the dwarf made a triumphant sound and declared that they would make the foothills by nightfall. There was green ahead. Harl reported seeing copses of trees, sparse and scrawny trees to be sure, but trees nonetheless. That night, entering the foothills put Harl in such a good mood that Aradine was able to coax the usually silent and introverted dwarf to share a story with them over their small campfire. The story begins many, many centuries ago, in the time the dwarves called the Age of Champions. Back then, we dwarves did not mix with the race of men. We were too busy doing the task Gruenmog created us to do, finding the treasures of the earth and drawing forth their magical essences. And so, all across Merith, the mountains sang with the ringing of our pickaxes and hammers. They say it was a glorious time. Now, of all the great halls of the Dwarven people, the greatest was right at the summit of the Cloudspur Mountain, which you may know is the tallest in Kazmirioth. It's easy to see from Dwarvar during the winter, when the weather and the air are just so. Usually in the spring and summer it's invisible, but believe me, it towers above the rest. Anyway, the greatest of all the halls was simply called the Agogen, the summit. Not just for its location, but because it was the pinnacle of Dwarven invention and effort in our people's entire history. Sadly, it is just a ruin now. What happened to it? Nera Numenex, the Crimson Queen, the Fire Lizard, 
reduced it to ash and cinder, although many of its citizens were saved. Historians and archivists cannot tell us where the dragon came from. Some believe it was birthed by an evil mountain far to the south. Oh yes, mountains can be evil. I saw you roll your eyes, Umura. It might be hard to believe, but some mountains contain naught but hellfire within. In the Age of Champions, one of these evil mountains exploded, and, so it is said, the worm was torn from a state of unbeing to a state of being by the magical energies released in the blast. It is known that a dragon is the purest and greatest mortal creature that may be formed of magic. The beasts are nigh eternal, huge, powerful beyond imagining. But forget how it was formed. Instead, ask why it was. Perhaps it was Gruenmug's wrath, though over what is beyond my ken. Our clerics continue to speculate and debate about it to this day. Why would a beneficent god create such a monster? I have no answer. Let the Solemns and their scriptures answer. Why allow pestilence, famine, or war? Why allow evil at all? To allow for the possibility of good? Well, that's what the priests will tell you. I know not. No one knows. Something I do know is that during the battle at the Ecogen, three champions emerged. You've already seen their likenesses on the tapestry in the throne room. You see, when the dwarves learned of the dragon's approach, there was never any talk of escape. We dwarves were, and are, still a proud, proud people. Instead of running, the people of the Agrogen set about preparing for battle. Ursuleth, you know the stories as well as I. Why don't you tell them about the Axe Clanger and Elamor? Well, all right. The first champion was Azoblin Axe Clanger. He took that name after he forged the great axe you saw him holding in the picture. He discovered the secret of Amethyst and put it into his weapon. Such a powerful blade had never been seen before and has not been seen since. The weapon has not been lost either, right, Cousin Hal? Mm-hmm. Go on, Ursuleth. The second champion to emerge was Varen Elamor. It's a strange family name for a dwarf, if you ask me. Anyway, Varen was the Aegogen's greatest armorer. He forged the Shield of Winter, which was said to protect the bearer from any fire, even the fire of a dragon. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody knows the location of this shield. It is lost. In his old age, Elamor apparently donned his full armor and left his home. He did not say where he was going, and he never returned. It's one of our greatest mysteries. Thank you, Rizalith. You tell the stories as well as any dwarf and do me proud. But I shall take it from here, hmm? The most famous and greatest of all three champions was Mykele Blacknail. He is also the most mysterious, the eldest of the three by a good measure. Most historians believe he was an archiver, although this too is apocryphal. Like Elamor, his resting place is a mystery. No, no, he did not wander off. Mykele Blacknail led the refugees of the Agrogen away and founded a new mountain home. He ruled there for several centuries and grew old. When he died, all dwarves of the Kazmirioth were in the middle of a war with the giant races. This was the age when Dwarvar was built, incidentally. Anyway, Blacknail's family built a vault in a secret location so that the giants could never defile his body. Unfortunately, the only one said to know the location of the vault died in that war. At least, that's what I thought until a few days ago. I'm not sure you would have understood at the time, but Barok, 
Yes, Gyrios, he's the one that broke into the throne room. Hinted that he may have found it. If he has, and I think it is very, very unlikely. But if he has truly found it, it could mean something bad. Not just for the dwarves or even Kazmirioth, but for all of this part of Merith. You see, Blacknell's body was not the only thing hidden in that vault. The battle against the Crimson Queen had been won. Blacknell had struck a blow with his warhammer so strong and hard that it broke off one of the worm's teeth. Nerenuminax was driven off, and although the Agrogen was destroyed, it was a victory all in all. Now, the tooth of a fire lizard is a rare and powerful thing. Remember that a dragon is constituted of magical energies, and the wild violence of a mountain's hellfire, and a dragon's tooth is a connection to those energies. Blacknell's family did not want it, but they did not want the giants to get it either, so they hid it along with Blacknell's body. If Barok has found the vault, he could get that tooth. Well, only a fool dwells on what-ifs and fantasies, and I'm not one to talk a fellow's ear off, so... Let's all try to get some sleep. Chapter 27, Part 3, Day 27, Evening. Smoke, Anatar. I tell you, I saw smoke. Right over there. Hayward had insisted over and over again but Anatar was unsure whether or not to believe him. Hayward Bellowsmender was not the most reliable at the best of times, and most of the time he was half drunk. Still, this sighting, which not one of the other four dwarves had witnessed, had been all there was to go on, and Anatar did not intend to return to Barok empty-handed. Sure as stones, Anatar. Sure as stones, right over yonder. Just a wisp, but I swear it was there. So they had traveled roughly southeast in the direction Hayward indicated. It did not take long before each of them realized that they felt no thirst, nor hunger, nor any particular need to rest. They did take the occasional drink, especially Hayward, and they also stopped to consume a few dried rations. At night, they made camp and rested for a few hours, but none of it had really been necessary. They did it all, more or less, out of habit. How curious, thought Anatar. Perhaps it was even more curious that none of them talked about it. On the morning of the second day of travel, their efforts were rewarded. They all clearly heard a distant woman's voice, a single scream. As they gathered their gear and hurried off in the direction of the noise, Hayward spared no opportunity to remind them he had been right. I told you I saw smoke. Next time you might believe an honest dwarf more readily, sulked Hayward. The day proved to be a miserable one, weatherwise. The rain began abruptly, dumping the contents of the dark clouds down over the length of the Kazmirioth. It was as though Gruenmog had thrown a celestial switch. But Anatar discovered that it bothered him not a whit to be soaked through and blown about by mountain winds. He didn't feel uncomfortable at all. Perhaps he should not have been surprised. By now, they should be exhausted, hungry, thirsty, cold, and miserable. But they were simply not. He felt nothing really. All he cared about was to overtake and catch his quarry. In the evening, the rain finally stopped, but he felt no joy or even relief. His capacity for emotion seemed to have been washed away by the rain. 
The six of them set up their camp and made no fire. Hayward passed around a jug of whiskey, even though none of them were bothered by the cold. The alcohol did not warm their bellies, nor did it mellow their moods, but they drank it anyway. They did not talk at all. The next day, they got up early. Not one dwarf complained or begged to doze for just a few more minutes. They simply got up, packed their gear, and continued their march. At noontime, they heard an eagle cry out, and Anatar announced that it was a very good omen. Hearing the sound of his own voice, he realized it was the first thing anyone had said in over a day. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to lend your support, please consider spreading the word on social media or leaving a review on the podcatcher of your choice. My gratitude to everyone who has left a review so far. I'd like to read one of these great reviews right now. This one is short and sweet. It's by Nicole Fasano. She writes, Very good tales. We play D&D, you play D&D, and we like it. Ha! Fantastic. Thanks, Nicole Fasano. Thanks is also due to those whose voices make the story come alive. Kirsty Wilson as Ursuleth Stonecarver and Menion, a.k.a. Rob, as Hayward Bellows-Mender. Check out Menion's podcast, Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy. You can find me on Twitter at Manticore Tale and on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. You can also reach me by email. My address is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also maintain a blog, taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, maps, art, character sheets, random musings, and other errata. Some original music from the show is available and free to use on YouTube, too. The adventure will continue next time on Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Would you like to know more about some of the most influential role-playing games out there? Roll to Save is a podcast dedicated to the history of RPGs, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts from and at rolltosave.blog. We take a long, hard look at the origins of some of the biggest games and their often turbulent histories. Roll to Save also looks at how modern games have been shaped by the games that came before. So, if you fancy delving into the fascinating history of role-playing games, visit rolltosave.blog or search for Roll to Save on your podcast directory of choice. You can also contact us at at SavePodcast on Twitter. Join us on a trip down memory lane. You might be surprised at what you learn.